When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Avatar Glorious or Racist Schlock Edition. It's Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. On today's show, Avatar, The Way of Water. It's the sequel to the highest grosser of all time, 2009's Avatar. This once again uh, unites writer-director James Cameron with the splendors of CGI uh, to bring us an ecological parable. And, of course, a giant blockbuster. And then Harry and Meghan is the new Netflix streamer about the royal couple Is it a documentary or a propagandistic vanity project? We will discuss. And finally, in the spirit of the GabFest trying new tech and being kind of clueless about it, we're going to try Lenza AI, the app that uses AI technology to send your likeness deep into the uncanny valley. Uh, Joining me today is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens. Uh, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. I have to say, like, a lot of rich texts to play with today. I'm very psyched about all three of these topics. Shall we dig in? Shall we make a show? Yes, indeed. All right. Well, James Cameron, of course, he's the writer-director. Uh, he made uh, the Terminator series, beginning with Terminator, in my estimation, one of the truly great Hollywood movies ever made that launched Arnold. He later made Titanic, uh, I think, for a while Owned the top all-time box office spot, uh, a whopping commercial success, and I think largely a critical one, too. Incredibly, he then topped himself. Uh, The original Avatar, probable project in every way. It was pioneering in its use of technology and motion capture and CGI. It created this weird, uncanny humanoid race that a lot of people found, like, bizarrely off-putting, smarmy, creepy. I mean, all kinds of things. Um... And it was kind of an indictment of the entire human race in a way. Uh, And yet it became, it grossed $2 billion. It was unstoppable commercially. It was the highest grossing movie until the last Avengers film. But then it knocked that off again last year due to a re-release in China. I mean, just this juggernaut. Um, And then Nothing, right? I mean, there was this sort of odd period where, of course, a sequel. I mean, sequelization is is just flows as as naturally as water. And here it comes, Avatar: The Way of the Water returns the actor Sam Worthington or his like weird hybridized blue eyes likeness as Jake Sully, the ex Jarhead, as he calls himself, a 
Reen, who gets uh, through DNA and mind melding, becomes a Navi tribesperson. He, of course, uh, at the end of the original Avatar, he's fallen in love. He stays behind. He starts a family, as we find out at the beginning of the sequel. Uh, the action here inaugurates with Sky People, a.k.a. us, the Earthlings, the white colonial invaders, specifically from Earth, returning with a bounty on Jake Sully's head. Uh, in addition to returning Sam Worthington, we have Zoe Saldana as Natiri, who's now his wife. Why don't we listen to a clip? It comes from the trailer. Jake Sully is on the lamb with his family. He knows there's a bounty on his head. So he's seeking refuge with a different tribe. These are not forests, but a people of the water. The first voice we're going to hear is of the very skeptical chieftain. Let's listen. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. Treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up, Forest Boy! If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe. Breathe. All right, Dana, let me start with you. This is... In one sense, a highly anticipated movie, and uh, it's getting interestingly mixed reactions. Tell me what you thought of it. I'm dying to know, actually. I mean, I think so much about this movie. My review of it was practically as outsized as the movie itself. I just couldn't stop. I mean, even just sort of getting through the story of a three-hour and ten-minute movie that takes place, you know, with these whatever various other genetically engineered bio humans fighting one another on another planet took a long time and I'm still kind of processing my feelings about Avatar but I have to say that in both cases both Avatar movies that is even though I spent large portions of the running time thinking boy this is weird and hokey and self-indulgent and corny and over the top the fact is that these movies are overwhelmingly beautiful and are this these sensory onslaughts that while you're experiencing them feel irresistible. In that sense, I guess they could be said to be like rides or like games or the various things they've been compared to that aren't regular narrative feature films. And it's just strange for me to have a movie that what I love about it is not the characters or the story or the dialogue, but somehow the um, the world, just the sensory world that it establishes. But I think that that has been true of both Avatar movies and all the more so of this one, both because of technical advances since the last one and just because of James Cameron's evident love for water and for the ocean. And, you know, there his his mm. biography starts to come in, too. And the fact that, you know, as is often written about in, in reviews of this new movie, that he has his own way of water mysticism, right? He constructed or had constructed this special one-person submarine so that he could descend the Mariana Trench, the deepest place in the ocean floor, and, you know, spent some of his earnings from the first Avatar doing actual real-world sea, real sea uh, exploration. And his passion for that and for marine life and his just kind of earnest, corny um, belief in in ocean environmentalism is, I think, a huge selling point for this movie. And we'll get to the whales, which I think are the best part of this movie, the strange whales of the planet Pandora. Uh, but yeah, I think that if you, if you enjoy a sensory enveloping experience in the theater, that you should peel away some of your cynicism and go see Avatar, because even though it is based on a previously existing property, and that property is, as you said, the highest grossing movie of all time, 
there's something almost indie about how original his vision is and how passionate he is about it. And there's nothing that feels phoned in or wrote about this movie. Um, I'll, I'll stop there, but I have lots more to say in the course of this conversation. Oh, interesting. Uh, Julia, nothing phoned in or wrote a rich and original vision uh, disguised as a giant blockbuster. What do you make of that? This movie really, really bummed me out. I don't know if it bummed me out. I, I, it is perhaps a victim of my expectations about my expectations, which maybe isn't James Cameron's fault. But I think, you know, his shtick, not just for me, is that he goes all in making something that people are like, really? You're going to do what? You know, people made fun of Titanic before it came out. Like, he spent how much? He sunk a ship and, but what? Uh, you know, people have been skeptical of his endeavors for a long time. And I appreciate his commitment to his vision. And Titanic was an amazing spectacle and a great thing to watch. And I went into the first Avatar, probably for this show, in 2009, thinking, I don't want to see this, and coming out thinking, whoa, that's not like anything I've ever seen before. And I remember seeing the trailer for this and thinking like, ugh, damn it, I have no desire to see that, but I can tell from the crispness of the visuals that it's going to feel like a leap forward in filmmaking and remind me that so much of the CGI that we see in other films right now is not really groundbreaking or up to snuff and it's kind of filler. And then it just didn't look that new to me. Mm. And it also seemed like it had a real case of too big to edit syndrome. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, very, very mildly spoil. If you want to be truly unspoiled, you can you can skip this part. But it's it, it's really more just about the, the way this film fits into the hypothetical structure of the, you know, is it a trilogy or is it going to be five? Which I guess how many of us go pay and see this will determine. Um, but essentially, the whole movie is the beat where the warriors like I don't know if I should fight for justice. I just want to protect my family which usually is dispensed with in a like eight to 12 minute sequence in the first third of the film. And then the warrior is like, I better fight for justice. But this mm -hmm. whole three, <laughs> three plus hour movie is him learning that one eight minute lesson. And then literally the last line of the movie is like, come on back for the sequel, which makes you feel like you've sat there for three yeah. hours to watch a trailer for a movie that's coming out in 2024. And I was furious coming out of it, just furious about how high on its own supply this movie seemed. Yeah, I, so here's how totally fresh I came to this uh, franchise is Saturday night, I think, uh, I uh, sat in front of a fireplace, flipped open my laptop and paid four bucks to Amazon Prime and watched Avatar for the first time. And within 10 seconds, I was like appropriately blown away from it, even at, by it, even at this late date. And part of the reason is the filmmaker I most admire of, of the many James Camerons we've encountered over the 20, 30 years he's been making pictures remains the first Terminator film, which I just think is a brilliant genre and action picture. And then the repurposing of Arnold as a hero and the second one is brilliantly done. I think that is a great blockbuster. Um, I think there was so much cleverness 
uh, in the screenwriting of both of those movies. Um, I, I, I really admire Cameron for them. And I was shocked to discover that that, that filmmaker, who I thought had really disappeared in the overblown, sickly idiocy of Titanic, had kind of reappeared in Avatar. Because that movie is fascinatingly about, you know, it's the relationship between this jarhead, right? I mean, I get I get all the problems with it, and we'll get to those. But But just as a genre conceit that you're beaming this guy's consciousness into this form and how that plays out simply as a suspense MacGuffin um, and a sci-fi MacGuffin was really well done. And I was like, okay, I'm in the presence of the master that I originally fell in love with, with that Terminator movie. And so that I just was, you know, now all of the problems immediately hit you, right? I was like, at the same time, I was admiring the clockwork rhythms of a terrific and original blockbuster. I was also, it's like, is this the most racist movie or the most woke movie I've ever seen? Or is it like a cake and eat it to cop out extravaganza? I, I just couldn't, I couldn't quite make up my mind. And part of it was, it's sort of trying to get at the relationship between toxic masculinity and a dying planet, right? And colonialism. And at least it's trying to bring those, heave those into the consciousness of your average blockbuster ticket buyer. Um, and then it's in this film that it, that balance, Dana, for me was totally lost between the sort of genre tightness and brilliance of it and originality of it with this larger message. And all of a sudden, because what are the two worst refuges you can take once you've decided to think critically about toxic masculinity colonial exploitation and ecological disaster, right? The white savior complex is the perpetual danger. I mean, he is a white male filmmaker and Gaia Wu, for lack of a better expression, the idea that there's, I mean, and of course these two things are bound up in one another, the idea that these native people are exist in a primitive state and therefore pre-technological state and therefore are somehow closer to the the Gaia mind, the networked Gaia intelligence of the um, holistic ecosystem, right? The whole ecology of the planet, right? Which is in its way a beautiful idea, but it's entirely a white colonial projection onto non-European, non-industrial peoples. And in this one, I just thought it it really, really became pompous and the very, in some ways, the very thing that it's attempting to deconstruct and critique. Anyway, Dana, defend this movie. I mean, I, I'll, well, one thing I will say is that I think if that critique can be made, the, um, you know, the critique that the movie itself is an exercise in colonialism, it can be made every bit as much of the first as of the second. And maybe yes. more so because the, the Sam agree. Worthington's character, Jake Scully, is at this point has fully uh, incorporated himself into his avatar body, right? I mean, he can't really be seen as a white savior anymore because now he's a blue people among the other blue people who meet up with the teal people. I mean, obviously race is in a strange area of suspension when you're talking about this movie and it all becomes very allegorical and vague, but I don't know that I have a great defense of this movie. I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending it necessarily on moral grounds. I'm saying that it's, it's, I understand why these movies are enormously popular spectacles because they're incredibly effective pieces of movie making. And it sounds like Julia didn't experience that at all, that she did experience in a state of boredom and irritation. I went in thinking, please, God, let this not feel three hours and 10 minutes long. And in some stretches, it did. 
But I felt that it brought me enough, that it brought me enough kind of visual wonders and the undersea sequences and uh, and just a sense of, of vastness and newness in the space it was exploring that I was willing to forgive it a lot. In fact, my favorite stretches were the ones where the least was happening. You know, you mm. could argue that there are some very narratively static stretches where the, the teen navvies are exploring the ocean and getting to know the whale, who I continue to think is the, the coolest character, the psychic whale. Um, but... But those were my favorite. You know, those were the sort of um, National Geographic documentary of a non-existent planet portion of the movie, which I felt was, you know, what I would be willing to to throw down my money for. I, I honestly think if it had stuck the landing better and had any kind of integrity as the end of its own movie, instead of having this just incredibly cheese ball throw to the next movie, which made it feel so indulgent i might have been able to appreciate it as a as an object with its own integrity but i don't know i mean have you watched those nature documentaries that they can make these days like the real ocean is pretty fucking cool to look at and i know and i also have to ask you guys this was obviously a key part of the first film because our protagonist falls in love with a beautiful Navi woman. And isn't it convenient that these aliens just kind of look like extremely long and lithe uh, and lissom, like hot, you know, humans, but blue? Um, And gendered, by the way. I mean, like, you know, very distinctly gendered, unless I miss something. No, they're incredibly gendered. They have fucking boobs. They have human (laughs) boobs. And the amount, I, I just would like a dollar amount of how much was spent on determining exactly which, like, loose and ever so slightly yes. slack tendrils of seaweed and, you know, forest detritus become the, like, half bikini tops of these, like, small-boobed, lissom... Like, it's pervy. The movie seems pervy about the women in it. It's Am pervy. I just a perv for it's thinking really that? I, they're, they're just like constantly, and there's something about the way that they design the bikini tops that is like very 70s swimsuit issue. Like, the elastic isn't good yet, you know? It's like fucking, the whole... it's Bo Derek. <laughs> I mean, I I, so, I have to say, I mean, a, yeah. a part of me, I like you guys, we just talked about Top Gun Maverick early this year. You've never seen a blockbuster before that tries to have sex appeal and is cheesy about it. Isn't that part of what makes these movies kind of, I mean, as I said, I watched the entire movie with my eyes rolling, but at the same time, the rolling eyes kept returning to the image on screen and wanting to continue watching it. Yeah. I am not being made to feel pervy for some kind of like interspecies animal creature. Like, yes, it feels less pervy. Like, I'm allowed to lust after a human body. (laughs) It feels weird to be made to lust after an animal, an animal creature. And combined with the dangers of the white colonial male gaze, right? It's like, and the primitivism and the all of it. It's like, it is really dangerous, Rousseau. Territory. It's like a, more backwards than backwards, almost. I mean, it's it's like I do think there's a broader gender issue here. Like there are these like feral mama she cats. Like the men in the movie are like, let's think about the war strategy and does it make sense to join forces with this tribe? And, you know, they're like the logical people. And then the female leads are constantly just like literally having cat fights they hiss at each other they in antagonism and oh, then God. they cannot be held back when they when they're like mama bear instinct it, it, it 
Ugh, it's this the, movie it's infuriated the- me. Infuriated me. And and the only the only glimmer of delight in it is that there is a long sequence on a whaling boat that is intended to establish like the mechanisms of aggression of mm. the sky people and the mechanisms of defense of the whales and the humans. And there is a ever so slight bit of self-awareness in the kind of like Ahab monomaniacal white Mm -hmm. whale chasing, I'm going to just keep fucking making movies about these Navi for the rest of my goddamn life-ness of James Cameron and having a whaling boat sequence. And that is the one thing I loved about the movie. And I will leave it there. All right. So much to say about this movie. And we'd love to hear your side of it too if you've seen it and you have an opinion please shoot us an email on uh, either of the avatar movies maybe especially this this latter one that's just come out let us know uh, all right let's move on apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on all your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend. Hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what, um, what do we have this week? Stephen, we have but one item of business this week, and that is to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're answering a question from a listener named Matt, who says that he loves having a membership at a local museum where he can revisit his favorite pieces over and over. We'll read his whole question out loud in the Plus segment. He had some great questions about visiting works of art and whether we have works of art in museums or elsewhere that we like to revisit over and over, sort of local friends in the visual art world. So we'll do our best to answer that question in this week's Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear that at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Slate Plus members get ad-free podcasts. They get lots of bonus content like the segment I just described. And of course, they get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. When you are a Slate Plus member, you're supporting us, our work, and the journalism of our brilliant colleagues. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, Harry and Meghan is the new streaming show on Netflix. It's a multi-part documentary about Megxit told entirely from the point of view of Harry and Meghan, the Duke of Sussex, of course, and the American TV actress he married. And their melodrama is that of a couple wishing to flee their prison from the vultures known as the Pap, the paparazzi who hound them everywhere, the mafiosi known as the royal family, um, and the constraints of silence and decorum imposed upon them by all the above. Uh, The show's been criticized for being told entirely from their perspective. There are, of course, executive producers on it. In the clip we're about to hear, you'll hear from both of them. They're explaining, Harry and Meghan, why they've decided to make this series. Let's listen. This is a great love story. And the craziest thing is that I think this love story is only just getting started. 
know, she sacrificed everything that she ever knew, the freedom that she had, to join me in my world. And then, pretty soon after that, I ended up sacrificing everything that I know to join her in her world. I'm not going to say that it's comfortable, but when you feel like people haven't gotten any sense of who you are for so long, it's really nice to just be able to have the opportunity to let people have a bit more of a glimpse into what's happened and, and also who we are. Mm, okay, Julia, let me start with you. I sort of somewhat downplayed it in my intros. How much backlash this documentary has inspired most of the stuff printed about it? Critics have come in hard. They find it mawkish, self-serving, on and on. What did you make of it? I'm very curious. Oh, I ate it up. I mean, <laughs> it's fun to get the inside view of a tabloid shitstorm. And it's fun to tangle with, you know... a a version of their story that is very much theirs. Like all of their friends come in and sit down and describe it. They make pretty serious accusations against Will, against Charles. And the documentary has a blanket. The Royals refuse to comment. You know, it's, it is propaganda. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a lengthy propaganda doc that is their view of their story. Um, but I found it both revealing and moving. I mean, people can reveal themselves in the stories they are intentionally shaping and trying to tell just as much as they can be revealed by, you know, a real, a rigorous, um, more credible journalistic endeavor. And, you know, (laughs) I mean, there's, there's definitely an irony to it of, of producing your multi, multi multi-part Netflix doc and being like, it is so awful how much attention people were paying to us if they would just stop looking at us. It's like, uh, guys, <laughs> what? You know, that that obvious ridiculousness um, also kind of undermines the seriousness of the endeavor. But, you know, I, I found it moving to hear with more detail than in the Oprah interview, both the promise of... Um, of Megan as a royal and what it might mean about the evolution of that institution and its representation, its relationship to people of color within the British Commonwealth countries and, um, you know, just relationship to modern womanhood uh, and, and moving. I mean, it, you know, I guess you can go tiny violins on them, but it does seem like it was super hard and it's interesting to hear them processing it. Mm. Dana, did a tiny violin string section start going in your head while you watched this? Did you feel the slight tingle of nausea in the back of your throat? Did you eat it up with a spoon? Where where do you land on this? I mean, I know I feel like I have to refer to our earlier segment on Avatar and push back on <laughs> anyone saying they were bored with the three hours and ten minutes of underwater exploration, yet, yet oh so anxious to sit down and watch six hours of unbelievably padded WhatsApp exchanges between Harry and Meghan. I mean, here, I'll just lay my cards on the line. Usually when we vote on a topic for this show, my attitude is sort of like, oh, I'm open to persuasion. Let's talk about all these things seem interesting. I don't know. This week, I 
seem to remember clearly saying, my vote is no. I do not want to talk about Harry and Meghan. I mean, for God's sake, when the Queen died earlier this year, it was months. I feel like it was six weeks of coverage of the Royals, mm. and I just have nothing left to say. And I, fe- I felt so hard that this was a piece of self-propaganda. Yes, of course, their story is is interesting. Not every romance has the angle of, you know, a, a prince courting this, you know, American actress who then leave the royalty. But we, we as a culture and we as a podcast mm. have talked about it so much that the I, I resented every moment that they wanted to capture more of my attention for what for the vast majority of the running time is a pretty banal love story like the most of the first episode is about their first date for god's (laughs) sake just the pace at which it moves is absolutely glacial so although there are some insights here and there about you know genuine trauma that they experienced and you know i'm not trying to diminish how painful it must have been, especially for Megan to be under the eye of the British media and the object of all of this racism directed toward her and her family. That stuff is legitimately awful. But a part of me wants to say, we know, you know, we know ever since Diana's death more than 30 years ago, that this, you know, fishbowl paparazzi nightmare is how the royalty works. And like, I don't know, I just feel like I've said all I have to say about these folks and I wish them well in their, you know, Oprah rose tinted <laughs> life. But enough already. Dana, we here at the Gab Fest do not air our dirty laundry in public. <laughs> if you had problems with the selection of the topic, there were other avenues other than a hot mic. <laughs> In which to deal with it. All right, Steve, you got to you got to break the tie. You were a surprising vote for discussing this in uh, the previously mentioned uh, programming discussions. So uh, tell us why you were interested and what you made of it. I was surprised at how everything I said, virtually word for word, about Avatar could transfer seamlessly to our second segment and this Harry and Meghan documentary. I mean, all of the ambivalences about. You know, is this deconstructing something that I legitimately hate on the part of someone who also legitimately hates it, but who is also that thing? And therefore, maybe they're having their cake and eating it, too. And in fact, isn't this just the colonialism by another name? Ah, Like my brain was sort of once again exploding between several possible alternatives. I mean, certainly, certainly it's it's totally it it is maudlin and self-serving narcissistic. I mean, it's all the things that people have said negatively about it. I think it's also all the things that people have said sympathetically about it, which is that they, they, whatever else is true, they exist at the center of this terrifying nucleus. It killed his mother. We can never, ever, ever set that aside when trying to understand what he personally is going through. The human story at the center of this is that his mother was destroyed by a combination of the British tabloid press and the incredible whopping hypocrisies and secrets of the lies of the royal family. And he has every noble motivation of simple self-preservation of self and dignity to want to exit that completely. And furthermore, he has now married someone who was literally called the people princess, which was wrung around his mother's neck. Um, I mean, the simultaneous exaltation and destruction, right, now heightened by race and Americanness, 
and, and Hollywood and all of that. I mean, it's just, I, it, it, that is a human story for which I feel an enormous amount of sympathy. Secondly, there is some leg showing here in the sense of meaningful, I mean, that's a sexist term, but you understand what I'm saying. There's like, you know, there's some full Monty. I don't know why, why am I turning this into a fucking strip show? There's, there's some substance to what's being revealed about what he calls a, a dirty game in episode four, which is where I found the rubber really hit the road. The Royal family mm-hmm. is in an active dance with the tabloid media. It, pretends to hate. They um, leak strategically, they plant stories strategically, and they do it, and and it's part of a, a horse trading operation, secret, semi-secret, covert horse trading operation um, that goes on, that's also an internecine battle between separate, quote-unquote, comms offices, communication offices that separate members of the royal families have that are playing off against one another. So if they want to bury something, according at least to Harry, but I find this entirely plausible about, you know, a certain member of the royal family, they trade dirt, you know, that they have on another member of the royal family. And so one gets at least, I think, a fuller picture of how uh, the royal family are are co-equals and co-perpetrators in this awful game that chewed up and spat out Diana. The question is, is this documentary itself just another chess move? Is Megxit just another chess move in some sense? Um, so I break the tie this way. You know, it's still a tie. Sorry. After penalty kicks, we're still tied. Look, if they, it, it, obviously they are not healed, right? Like there's, there's many scenes of them doing guided meditations and talking about their therapist and talking about their mental health. I mean, it, you know, t- talking about Megan's uh, suicidal ideations and and deep deep depression as she was being <clears throat> hounded um, in 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 racist ways by the British press, um, but there is a desire here to tell their side of the story and to have the last word, which is both very human and understandable, and also not, you know. Like, I wish for them a world where they actually don't care and they're not trying to tell mm. us their story and they yeah. can just enjoy their beautiful love story. You know, they're very, they seem very intent on being each other's perfect match, which, given everything they both have sacrificed in order to be together, no wonder that's their narrative about themselves. Um, and they, they And it doesn't feel constructed and it doesn't feel forced. They do seem genuinely quite smitten with each other, which... I guess they would in the documentary that they agreed to participate in and share all those um, riveting WhatsApp exchanges <laughs> for. But, you know, it, it's funny because they seem, they don't seem over it. They seem nostalgic. You know, there's the, there's a the whole episode where they explain what good royals they could have been, right? Just how, how wonderful it was for the world to have this more modern princess who was more multicultural and more open to evolving how to think about the idea of Britain. Um, and I don't know, man, they should get over that too. Like just, <laughs> I just, I wish them, I wish them like the next few cycles in their, in their processing. And I, I have a feeling this will not be the last topics call on which we debate whether we should engage with some he- Megan and Harryana. And uh, Dana, I will try to defer to you next time in the interest of leaving them the <laughs> yeah, hell they, alone. They might, they might sneeze again, and then we'll have to do another segment. <laughs> All right, Dana, I'll let you get the last jab to the eye there. Um, well done. All right, well, uh, 
Shoot us an email if you uh, see fit about the Harry and Meghan documentary now streaming on Netflix. Let's, uh, let's move on. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right. Lens AI is an app that allows you what you do is you basically take a selfie and you upload it to Lenza. And then an artificial intelligence image generator uses AI woo-woo to convert it into a kind of magic avatar or, you know, a digitally enhanced um, photo uh, through the powers of uh, digital morphology. Uh, Dana, let me start with you. Like, many times over the course of the history of this show, the three of us have trifled with technology only to walk away baffled. But this one's kind of weird and funny. What uh, What's going on here? I mean, there's a lot to talk about here beyond just how cool it is to generate a very flattering portrait of yourself. But on, a most, on the most basic level, I think the popularity of this app, which I think was the number one, you know, has just been at the very top of, of sales in the Apple App Store since last month when it was released. I think a huge part of that popularity is just that, you know, who doesn't want some sort of iridescent fairy anime version of themselves, you know, to, to pop into their little avatar squares on their various social medias. Um, there's one thing that's, I think, slightly inaccurate about the way you describe the way Lenza works. And I would love to know more technically about how this happens. But it isn't just one-to-one picture conversion, right? You don't just submit a picture and get a sort of glow-up version of that picture. You have to submit at least 10, I believe it is. And so there's a yeah. kind of composite face that's happening that then gets cast into all these different, you know, scenarios. Like you've got a Santa hat on, you know, and you're from a slightly different angle. And it's not necessarily reproducing the pose that you sent as much as, no, 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 I guess, right. learning the architecture of your face and casting it in these these different scenarios. And uh, this is not probably something that I would have done were we not talking about it for this segment, but I was pleased to have an excuse to do it because it's fun both to um, to see what the, the AI does with that information, that data about your face, and to kind of, you know, experience yourself as a fantasy anime avatar, which as a person who doesn't do gaming or role-playing games or, you know, or watch a lot of anime, that's not a fantasy space that I usually inhabit. And, uh, and it, was, it was really a window onto the appeal of kind of digital cosplay for me. 
But since we were just talking about the um, what was to Julia the the creepiness of the uh, the avatars, the the blue people in Avatar, and the way that they both do and don't resemble human bodies and seem to be sort of you know lengthened and lysomized and beautified, um, there's something of that going on with the Lenza app as well. I mean, I would not personally actually put one of these extremely flattering pictures of myself on a social media platform. I might share them with friends uh, but or put them in some sort of jokey Christmas card or something like that, but I would not want to be represented by this app because of what it represents for art and artists. I actually, and this is a somewhat unusual for GabFest Topics, heard some people talking about this on the train the other day. A bunch of young women across from me on the subway were talking about I believe it was Lenza. They were talking about a popular new AI app and and the portraits it generated. And uh, even though they were much more of the kind of selfie generation than I am, all of them to a one were saying, oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want to do it because I don't like what it does to artists and to art and the fact that it is, you know, essentially sort of at least theoretically, putting actual portrait painters out of work because you've got an app to do it for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the objection is that... um you know, what, what the app is doing is not Photoshopping your pictures. It's like ingesting your photos, learning your face, and then drawing your face in a number of styles based on what it's learned about those styles. But there's this other invisible part of its technology where just as it is ingesting the 12 or 20 photos you upload, it's ingesting like cosmic style art or stylish style art. And, you know, I think the critique is that there's not a ton of transparency in the app about whose art was ingested to teach the AI to make you look like a fairy princess or make you look like an anime figure or, you know, give you a a, a gloss of pop art. Um, And I think the presumption, assumption, accusation, criticism is that there's a lot of uncompensated artists who are on the, you know, whose work was sort of fed into the chipper of this app, and then is spit back out at us looking like Santa. In one case, for me, Santa with two pom-poms and slightly asymmetrical eyes. So, um, Steve... What what did Lenza do to you? Can we can we talk about some of your portraiture? Well, absolutely, we can. I mean, it's hard to say because did I fool AI? Am I like did I just like beat Deep Blue at chess? Because I fed it in the initial round of ten that they're going to then like kind of you know shoot through the supercomputing program. Those are all supposed to be of me, correct? Those initial first 10 in order for them to have multiple data points. Well, those, I believe, initial 10 were photos of both me and my daughters because, of course, I didn't grok the concept of the basic (laughs) concept of the app. And we have similar enough facial structures that it it seems to have amalgamated all of us. So I, I have some... There are some other ones here in which I'm gendered completely differently. And here's one that's just me and my daughter. I'm about to add one that's just me and my daughter <laughs> turn into this wonderful hybrid. <laughs> that explains, Steve, why your pictures look far less like you than Julia's and mine look like me. I mean, ours are kind of absurdly flattering in the style that I was talking about, but our facial features are recognizable, whereas you are just this very odd figure from like a Soviet propaganda poster. 
you're some sort right. of just square jawed space right. gazer who doesn't really resemble you I mean, at all. Don't be afraid to say it. It's not that I'm just like 50% handsomer in these. I'm like 400,000% hotter in these photos than well, I am in real life. I don't know though. I do think that the it rejects a bunch of your photos if they're not appropriate. So yeah. it may have rejected... I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not and, sure it would actually let you combine people. So fair maybe enough, this is just how handsome Steve really is. I think it's not working from enough data of Steve faces because another feature of Steve's photos on here is that they look very different from each other. I would never yeah. think that they were all AIs of the same person, whereas there's a consistency in mine and Julia's. So that makes me want to experiment with the app and see what happens when you give it more rather than fewer pictures, try it with different people, etc. I mean, I will say that it's very fun to play with. Remember when we did that app that changed your age and your gender presentation and we were sort of mm-hmm. looking at you know what our, our our selfies would look like as an older person or a child or the opposite gender um, this is a little bit similar to that right it's just a it's a goofy tool to play with and i guess i don't really see the harm in that unless it is in fact directly stealing from from people's art and i don't quite understand how that works julia i mean would it be actually going out into the internet and fishing up portraits of individual people? How does that help it draw your portrait? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I, I'm not sure. I don't think Lenza has really revealed the answer to that question. But I think it is learning what are the types of things that appear in quote unquote cosmic art styles. Um, and you get golden halos and weird gems and kind of stars and sparkles in the background. And um, you know, I, 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 it's, I'm speculating, but that's, that is the critique is that it's sort of absorbing the work of actual artists in teaching its computer to produce art in different styles. Um, I do think there are some gender issues here. So I did also do one for my husband and the options that, so the options that I got as a woman submitting were stylish, cosmic, uh, anime, kawaii, um, you know, there were sort of a bunch of holiday spirit. And my husband got a number of the same ones, but he also got a couple that I did not get. He got rock star, didn't get rock star, and he got superhero, didn't get superhero. Um, He also got astronaut, I didn't get astronaut, and he got adventure, I didn't get adventure. And it just, the, the, it made me want to put myself in again and stipulate my gender as male and see what happened. But, you know, it, it just as the fluttering seaweed bikinis uh, seemed a little pervy and weird and revealing of gender woes, um, you know, there's some kind of classically, almost boringly uh, irritating gender assumptions here. Maybe it's just random. I, d- I only did a couple of these. So maybe women get rock star a couple sometimes. Dana, were you made a rock star? an adventurer, an astronaut, or a superhero in your pack? Definitely not astronaut. I can't remember what they named these different styles, but I think I did get something that's that's along the lines of a sort of Pat Benatar-esque version of me, so that must be my rock star avatar. I kind of want to recast this again as no gender. There's a possibility of not making the choice, male mm. or female, and see what presentations it presents you with then. I, I think the real indicator here and the thing that we'll be coming back to is less what does your avatar look like and more how do these tools get used in the production of the art that we consume or the 
art that we produce um, and the, the ways in which computers can make art and can assist in making art, I think are going to create questions for critics like us and creators all around the world you know, this is going to be an animating discussion of the next decade. I mean, we just ran a piece in the LA Times this week about this new technology that helps in film editing, you know, for years and years and years, if you don't quite have the actor saying the right face while they say the right thing, um, you got to cut around it or you got to cut away or suddenly you're looking at a potted plant while someone comes in and, and ADR is the line that you need. And, and if you get a little savvy about filmmaking and television making, you can begin to see where they've had to like cut in somebody's voice after the fact saying the thing that makes the whole scene make sense. And you can sometimes even hear the slightly different quality of the audio in that if, if they're not careful. And there is this new computer technology that essentially deep fakes those moments, takes what you know about the actors and takes the audio you've got and makes it so that you don't have to cut away because you can essentially CGI the actor into saying the thing that you wanted them to say in the ADR. And the folks who are working with this tool are delighted by it. And it solves a lot of problems in the editing room. Uh, How actors feel is more complicated and what it suggests about how films will get made next is kind of wide open country and a little bit confusing. Mm, All right, well, we'll keep an eye on all of the above. I agree. Like Harry and Megan, it's one of those subjects we're inevitably going to return to. Um, all right. Well, uh, Lenza AI, check it out. Um, it, we had fun with it, if nothing else. Let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? Stephen, I'm going to give a local endorsement, but not for the location in which I live, for the one where I was visiting last week, which was Berkeley, California, my longtime home where I went to grad school. There's a place there I've wanted to visit for years with a friend, and first because of not being able to strike the hours when it was open, and then because of COVID and not traveling. It's been actual probable five years that I've been trying to visit this place in Berkeley with a good friend. We finally made it. And it's such a cool place. I just have to endorse it and hope that uh, some people, Bay Area listeners or people who are visiting the Bay Area will visit it. It's called the Aftel Archive of Curious Scents. And it's a little tiny perfume museum in in North Berkeley. It's very close to Chez Panisse, actually. So if you wanted to have a very luxurious afternoon, you could have lunch there and then waft over to the perfume archive. It's run by this woman, Mandy Aftel, who is a perfumier and a writer on scent. She's written, I think, five books about the history and creation of fragrance. And the entire thing. It's just one room, one narrow room that is really her collection, her family's private collection of perfume-related artifacts and essences. So there are things like uh, a little case of ambergris chunks, you know, from various whales over the centuries. There's lots of samples of things to to smell and, and take away samples of with you. There are, you know, taxidermied civet cats and beavers and other um, animals that have lent their essences to perfume over the decades. And most of all, there's just Mandy Eftel, who is this walking archive on the history of scent. And you can sort of ask her anything about this, the stuff in her collection, which also includes, this was really exciting for me for non-perfume related reasons, the oldest book I've ever touched, a, a, an herbalist manual from England from 1595. This just right there with a magnifying glass. And if you put a pair of gloves on, you can look through the book and handle it. And that was really exciting. Anyway, you have to make a, a reservation at this place and, you know, tell them exactly when you're coming. 
Um, but it is so, so worth the price of admission to spend an afternoon at the Aftel Archive of Curious Sense in Berkeley. Oh, that sounds amazing. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Um, I am going to endorse an Instagram comedian called Front Porch Dad. Um, he does these little videos in which he imitates the banal speech of essentially suburban parents, of which I am now one, um, doing very precise, mundane things. It's like, so So each video is maybe like a minute, and it's a quick cut of him walking around and talking and saying the kinds of banal things that people say in certain very specific conversations. So passing people on hikes, and it just imitates like the things you say, getting close to the summit, looking sweaty, beautiful day. Nice backpack. You had the right idea. Well, I'm jealous. You're already on the way down. <laughs> My favorite is people talking about changes they would make to random houses. And it just imagines you like on a walk around your cul-de-sac be- being like, you know, if you took down that wall, like they kind of put a nice tree in this corner. Gosh, you could turn this whole back house into a rental. String lights. Seems like a lot of wasted space. Shame they're not using that little front porch area. I would have to do something with this. There's something about the ear that he has and the observation that he has of sort of like filler talk, nothing talk um, that I haven't quite seen scrutinized in this way. And it just makes me laugh. It's like a very specific funny parody that is both like knowing and critical, but also kind of appreciative. Like there's a warmth to it. I don't know. These are, these are making me laugh and making comedy out of life's conversational filler in uh, a very sharply observed way. So it's Friend Porch Dad. I've been following him on Instagram. I think he puts them all over. I think they're on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and wherever the heck you want to watch a guy making internet comedy. Um, but I would particularly point you to people talking about changes they would make to random houses. That sounds great. I cannot wait to check it out. All right. My endorsement is sort of a follow-up on a segment we did on um, the documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, which was based on a lot of archival material. But one source was this extraordinary trove of interviews that Newman had given to the screenwriter Stuart Stern with an eye towards uh, compiling it into a really definitive biography. It never got written. Those documents disappeared. They were recently discovered by a family member in an attic or a garage or something. And they've now been compiled and published as a book. Um, This is uh, something separate from the documentary made by the actor Ethan Hawke that we discussed. Um, There's a review of the book by Simon Callow, the English actor and writer um, and uh, thespian and just all around sort of renaissance man. I mean, he's really a remarkable writer of uh, review essays, among many other things. This is a beautifully done review essay called Old Blue Eyes by Simon Callow in the New York Review of Books. And I'm not going to quote Callow's writing, which is extraordinary, but two things that he quotes give some of its flavor that I thought was wonderful because sort of trying to get at this man who is mysterious both as a human being, he claims over and over again and very eloquently in these interviews how he's such a mystery to himself and, and, and trying to get at why, but also as an as a artist and as a performer and as an actor. I mean, and the confusion Callow gets at so deftly and so brilliant, he quotes Martin Scorsese, who when asked about Newman said, the history of movies without Paul Newman, question mark, it's unthinkable. His presence, his beauty, his physical eloquence, the emotional complexity he could conjure up 
and transmit through his acting in so many movies, where would we be without him? Wonderful judgment and in some ways definitive to be followed by David Thompson, the wonderful English film critic. I mean, an incredible film historian and critic. Dana, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, very familiar with his work. Yeah, yeah, um, I know, and I know him personally too. He's, he's a great critic. He is really a, an astonishing critic. His judgment on Newman is, he seems to me an uneasy, self-regarding personality as if handsomeness had left him guilty, just as his habitation of rugged, quote-unquote, wild ones was never totally convincing, so too his, quote-unquote, straight parts seem neutered and derivative. And what's funny is that both of those judgments are true in some sense. I mean, you can find elements of any one of his performances, and certainly over the range, magnificent range of performances he gave, you can find evidence for both judgments. And Callow just writes a perfectly calibrated, beautifully written piece of criticism trying to kind of square these and come to a really deep, interesting, mature understanding of this, you know, sort of outrageously beautiful uh, golden age of Hollywood movie star. It's just a wonderful review essay. I couldn't have admired it more. I envied every sentence and wish I'd written them myself. So check it out. Old Blue Eyes, New York Review of Books by Simon Callow. Julia, thank you so much. That was really fun. Thank you. Dana, as always, a total pleasure. Yes, it was a joy. Thanks, Stephen. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a lot of stuff. Target rich environment this week. Uh, complaints, uh, uh, seconding opinions, refuting them. We love it. Uh, our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. This episode is presented by Best Buy. So it's official. We're now in the midst of the holiday shopping season. I feel like after Thanksgiving is over, we're allowed to say that. I really don't like hearing Christmas carols or seeing Santa in people's yards until Thanksgiving afternoon. And after that, it's all part of the spirit. That also means it's time to start thinking about getting gifts for our friends, our family and loved ones, and thinking about gifts that we might want to receive. Uh, Steve, I have a very general question for you about gift giving. How does your family approach presents during the holiday season? And uh, do you have any traditions related to gift giving that come up every year? So it's funny. I grew up in a family where it was a very, I, I only realized later it was a very odd philosophy of gift giving, which is that at Thanksgiving with my, my extended family, my mother and my aunt would sort of trade long lists, you know, derived directly from the testimonials of the children and others about what to get. So there was like sort of asking for XYZ and receiving XYZ and not, I mean, there was, believe me, nothing lavish about any of that. So it wasn't like you asked for a pony, you got a pony. It wasn't that. It was like you kind of knew to ask for like a pair of socks, a book and a something else, right? Like, and so it was, it was very weirdly automated and sort of surprise and thoughtfulness, I guess, was, was downplayed. And so with, 
as with all of my nuclear family creation and parenting, I've massively overcompensated to the other extreme now. And so it's kind of this winging it free-for-all where um, you make up for a total lack of forethought and planning with like thoughtfulness and deep feeling (laughs) and kind of hit and miss, but the hits are amazing. (laughs) And the misses (laughs) live on in family lore practically forever. But um, I would say that that is the, if it could be dignified with the word philosophy, I'd be impressed by that philosopher and want to want to read her collected works, but let's call it a philosophy of gift giving, but it results in a lot of joy and amusement and in the moment, like spontaneous expressions of affection. So I, I think it works. There's also, by the way, my kids saying, I want a friggin' pony daddy. And I go and buy them the friggin' pony. <laughs> so <laughs> what about you, Dana? I'm curious. I mean, I guess it is kind of chaos reigns. <laughs> usually my daughter, who is an only child, gets one big gift, and it's usually mm-hmm. her grandparents that give it to her <laughs> uh, because it's something that we either can't afford or don't want her to have <laughs> because yeah. yes, it's, too, exactly. um, it's too lavish. So that's her one lavish thing. But our gift giving as a family, just the three of us at home, and, and it usually is just the three of us on Christmas morning, is pretty humble like actually what we've mm-hmm. kind of come around to is that um is that the most important gifts we give each other are homemade they're crafty and that is in part because uh my kid's dad <laughs> my partner is a a big maker of things and he's very very hard to shop for he's one of those people who there just isn't anything in a store that feels right sure. for him i mean steve you know him you kind of can see how very. that's true right he's somebody who it's so much more meaningful and fun for him to get a drawing that you made you know or some sort of some sort of crafty thing or some sort of odd found object that reminds you of him than to just go into a store and try to find the essence of him there that doesn't mean of course that we don't shop for gifts because all that crafting involves a lot of, you know, heading out to get the materials for crafting. But actually, just yesterday, I was consulting with my daughter, who's now 16, about what various drawing things and glues and things like that she needs to make the stuff she needs to make for her dad, which is usually some sort of illustrated in-joke, you know? It's her turning some sort of ongoing dad-daughter, you know, corny teasing theme into a visual representation. So that's that's usually a big fun part of, of Christmas morning for us. All right, Steve. Well, we've we've talked now about our, our generous um, gestures towards others. Let's do a round on what you selfishly want for, for Christmas mm. this year. Is there anything over the holidays that you're hoping your family or somebody else presents you with? I definitely have a cogent philosophy as a gift receiver, which is um, that thing that you'd be reluctant to buy for yourself, but actually secretly or not so secretly really, really want. And um, so this year, it, it tends to be like... This is how nerdy I am. Like books from academic presses. <laughs> I want to say gigantic flat screen TVs to watch the NFL on, which I also want. But, but you know, it's like I don't want to go into the secondary market and deprive the author of you know Young Bloomsbury, the generation that redefined love, freedom, and self expression in 1920s England. It's probably not even an academic press. That sounds like a trade book to me. But you know, that's a thirty dollar book. It should be a thirty dollar book. Um, for everyone to get properly paid, uh, we should pay thirty dollars for it. But it's just like clicking that that button doesn't really happen. But asking for it and reading it greedily um, and taking notes in the margins—that's what I'm going to do this year. What about you, Dana? 
Well, in response to that, let me just say that as someone whose book retails for $30, <laughs> I hope a lot of people <laughs> this holiday season get over that resistance and buy it. Yeah. Uh, am I getting some? Is there anything in particular I want? This is a tough year for me be, to say that I want something new because uh, I'm in the midst of this giant excavation of everything that I own and an attempt to make my workspace and home less cluttered by getting rid of as many things as possible. So it's hard for me to think of a durable good that I really want this year. Mm. But given the lifting of COVID restrictions, I would say that the thing I want most this year is a trip. It would make me really, really happy to oh, open a package nice. that was that was basically a, a credit for a ticket on an airline or even somebody going to the trouble of saying, you know, I've gotten these tickets, although that's going to require, of course, some consultation and advanced planning. But the big thing that I hope happens in 2023 that hasn't been happening is travel, especially travel abroad. Mm, that's a lovely, lovely idea. All right. Well, Steve, it was nice getting a little glimpse into the um, very special Metcalf family <laughs> Christmas special with you. And I hope all of our listeners have a very, very happy holiday season. You can shop great deals now on gifts at Best Buy. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 